Hello, everybody. Satirius Johnson here. Before we begin this episode of California Now, I'd like to talk briefly about our podcast and California's reopening after many places closed due to COVID-19. While many of us have stayed home in recent months and put off travel plans, I'm willing to bet you've felt eager to get back out in the world. Like me, you may have been dreaming of your next California adventure. Well, this episode is part of a greatest hits series we've been working on from home to showcase some of the best spots in Southern, Central, Central and Northern California. As you venture back out, keep in mind some places in California may take some time to reopen and may have new guidelines in place. Thanks, and please enjoy this episode of California Now. Welcome to a special edition of California Now, a podcast produced by Visit California. I'm Satirius Johnson. Today, we're heading to Central California. We'll highlight some of the most exciting places our show has visited, from Santa Barbara to the vineyards of Paso Robles to the Monterey Bay Aquarium, with lots of tasty bites along the way. That Julia Child thought this taco stand was one of the greatest restaurants in America tells you something, okay? <laughs> like. <laughs> because when we envision Julia Child, we don't necessarily envision her at a taco stand on Milpas Street in Santa Barbara. We'll also check out California's cowboy culture at John Varian's V6 Ranch. We're on the mountain range that separates the coast from the Central Valley, and so we camp right on top of that mountain. And you pitch your own bedroll or your own tent and sleep out under the stars. And we'll take a drive up Highway 99 with stops in Bakersfield and Fresno. That's all coming up on California Now. Our episode begins a short drive northwest from Los Angeles, headed up California's central coast. Travel and food expert Aida Molenkamp tells us it's a beautiful area where you'll want to take your time when you stop in for a relaxing sip or local bite. So Ventura and Oxnard are twin cities that are known for all of our great California strawberries. So you can stop to the side if you see a U-Pick farm or something like that. And depending on the time of the year to the end of the season, you'll see all kinds of different strawberries. If you get your hands on gaviotas or seascapes, buy a pallet and use them as your road trip snack because they're delicious. I didn't realize there were different kinds of strawberries. Oh, so many. Everything that we're talking about today, it's like, here's just the tipping point into this whole world of strawberries or uh, all different kinds of flavors. And the other thing that there's a lot of different flavors of in Ventura are oysters. So if you are there on the weekend, then you absolutely must stop at the Jolly Oyster, which is a truck in the San Buenaventura State Beach Park. So you're, I'm talking... <laughs> oceanfront with like the breeze going through your hair and there's a little food truck and they are serving up kumamotos and sea urchin and they have a beet mignonette. I don't know who came up with that idea, but it is genius. (laughs) And you can just go to one of the picnic tables and hang out with your family. And the thing is, this is one of the things I absolutely adore about California right now is that the Jolly Oyster is far, well, farm as in ocean farm to table. And they're extremely committed to sustainability, which is a big theme that you'll see along this road trip in particular, is a love for local and a love for making things last. And so Jolly Oyster just totally embodies that. And just down the street, once you have your belly full, you 
have to go to the Patagonia headquarters. If, like me, you're into outdoor sports, skiing or hiking or surfing, you most likely have at least one product by them. And the thing is, their headquarters are right there in Ventura. Um, My husband is actually a surfer, and we go there whenever we're in town, mostly because, yes, you can shop, but because they have amazing events. I'm talking independent filmmaker screenings or an impromptu yoga class. So if you really want to take a break and dive into the culture of Ventura, the Patagonia headquarters is a really good cheat sheet for that. That sounds really great. And, you know, going back to the food trucks, I'm just kind of, that boggles the mind. When you think of food trucks, you don't think of oysters. You might think of like burgers or something, but to have a, a food truck that, you know, focuses on sustainable and just fresh oysters. I mean, that's just pretty amazing. For sure. And I think the thing that's so great about the California coast is right now we have people up and down the coast really committed to that sustainable seafood culture. And so you'll see aquaculture, all kinds of different people, including at the Ventura's Farmer's Market, which is Saturdays if you're in town then. It's an incredible farmer's market. has all the kinds of things we already talked about and more. Um, At the Ventura Farmer's Market, there is, well, at least last time, I went there a couple weeks ago, they had a seafood share. So basically, if you've heard of a farm share where you can subscribe to farm produce, they do the same thing with seafood. So you're just seeing these people over and over really committed to that. And also they have all kinds of great different kinds of seafood that you might not be totally comfortable with. Like sea urchin is still not you know mainstream for a lot of people, but that part of the coast has some of the best sea urchin in the world, hands down. That's really great. You know, I had no idea there was so much to do in Ventura. <laughs> where, where, where are we heading next? So from Ventura, we're going to head up towards Santa Barbara. And the thing is, this little coast area, just only a few mile drive between the two cities, is one of my favorites. If you got a convertible, which I know a lot of visitors like to do, throw that top down. And you're going to see some of the most famous surf points in this part of the coast. And so you're going to see surfers and great waves. And when you get to Santa Barbara, one of the places that I think is really worth stopping in is right next to the freeway in downtown. So there's this area called the Funk Zone because it's got its own little beat and vibe. And one of the things I really liked seeing out of the Funk Zone in the last few years is that it's become this mini tasting room area. So Santa Barbara and Central Coast has some of the most amazing wines in the world. All you have to do is watch the movie Sideways to know what I'm talking about. And (laughs) in the Funk Zone, you have some of those amazing wineries having their tasting rooms. And the place you're going to want to go first is called the Valley Project. This is by some local winemakers, and they have this map in chalk on the wall of the uh, tasting room that explains to you the geography, so how the winds blow, what different um, valleys that there are that you need to pay attention to to understand why this part of the world makes such phenomenal Pinot Noir and all these wines that they're known for. And so for a local Wine 101, you're going to want to go to the Valley Project. And this is a place where you can taste the wines from different wineries, kind of like one-stop shopping. This is a place that has a few different wineries who have come together and they have their own wines to taste, but they're from all over the region. So you really get an idea of what a wine that's more coastal versus a wine that's more inland tastes like. And so you'll understand that juxtaposition. If you want a bigger variety of wines to try, 
then you're going to want to head over to Les Marchands. And that's just maybe a block and a half down the road from the Valley Project. This is owned by Acme Hospitality, who owns some of my favorite things in Santa Barbara. They have great restaurants, but of them all, I really uh, love Les Marchands because they do have so many different uh, wineries that are represented, including some European wineries. And the vibes are kind of a Euro-rustic vibe. I'm talking a zinc-looking countertop and, you know, beautiful lighting and you walk in and you feel like Paris and Santa Barbara somehow came together in one room. Wow, it sounds like you can almost spend a couple of days at each stop on this road trip. I mean, to really appreciate all all that's offered, right? So do you have any advice for travelers who are accustomed to like a more rigid itinerary? Really what I encourage people to do is breathe into their itineraries. So give yourself Mm. more time than you think you need. Maybe pull over at a town you've never heard of before or a stop that you've never seen. And you're going to have a richer experience. So, for example, in Santa Barbara, the pier is beautiful. Just north of the pier is Ledbetter Beach. And a lot of people just blow past it because of the way that the main streets go through Santa Barbara. But this is a beach that locals hang out at, and they surf it. They do stand-up paddle boarding. You can even do some little Hobie cat sailing right out of there. And so... Something like that might not happen if you're on too rigid of a schedule. I always tell people, if you're at a place where you're liking the vibes, those people probably are doing things that you're going to want to do too. So just like tap into their info and their resources. Esquire Food and Drinks editor Jeff Gordonier knows a thing or two about culinary road trips. He curated a feature on them for the 2020 California Visitor's Guide. I interviewed him about some of his favorite places to eat in Santa Barbara, as well as his road trip travel book, Hungry, Eating, Road Tripping, and Risking It All with the Greatest Chef in the World. So the book is about how this guy, Rene Renzeppi, reached out to me. And that led, weirdly, to four years of traveling around the world together. So the book is about our travels together, but it's really kind of a a study of creativity and risk and reinvention, that point in your life when you decide to change things up, which I was doing and which Renee was doing as well. Um, And kind of it's just about the art of the road trip, you know, in that way it dovetails uh, very well with the look we're taking at California here because... There's probably no phrase in the English language that's more of an incantation for me than road trip. You know, like if someone says, let's go out or let's go on a vacation, I'm sort of nonplussed. But if someone says, let's go road tripping, I'll do anything. Like I'll, (laughs) I'll get on a plane, a train, let's rent a car, let's just go. And I find that incredibly appealing. I like the idea that you can change your surroundings just from saying yes. Right. I mean, and we, we love road trips on the podcast and to to focus the road trip around food. I mean, I almost feel like there's almost no better reason to take a road trip than to just like experience the amazing food offerings in an area. Yeah, that's what it's all about. I don't really understand what the road trip amounts to without the meals, you know? <laughs> like, I mean, to me, the road trip is all about the music you play in the car and the food you eat along the way. Now, you've called Santa Barbara the most beautiful place in America, and I know you're particularly fond of Paradise Cafe there. Tell listeners a bit about why. I'm incredibly envious of the people who live there. Uh, My wife and I actually love Santa Barbara so much 
that even though we live in New York, when we decided to get married a couple of years ago, we flew back to Santa Barbara and got married at the courthouse there. And oh, amazing. Um, yeah, and where we went for our dinner on our wedding night was Paradise Cafe to get cheeseburgers and martinis. That was our wedding uh, night dinner. <laughs> oh, that yeah, I love so great. it that much. But um, I mean, it's just another place that has the quintessential um, California cheeseburger. It's a little different in style than the pie and burger one. It's a little thicker patty, a um, little more minimalist. Like I don't think they have all the vegetables on there. But you feel like you walked into an Eagles song at this place. Uh, sun is streaming through the windows. There's an outdoor patio. You just don't want to leave, you know? Oh, yeah. So um, if you're in Santa Barbara, you have to go to La Superica. This mm. is an order. I'm not requesting that you do this like you have to do this. It's, it's kind of an American rite of passage for people who love food. Isn't that Julia Child's favorite restaurant? There you go. <laughs> a lot of people, you know, who, who moved the needle in the American food movement, you know, Jonathan Gold, Alice Waters, et cetera, and, you know, they come from California. Right. That Julia Child thought this taco stand was one of the greatest restaurants in America tells you something, okay? <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> because we don't, when we envision Julia Child, we don't necessarily envision her at a taco stand on Milpa Street right. in Santa Barbara. I love the thought of that, just that image of her walking up to the taco stand and enjoying one, you know, at a table outside. Yeah, I mean, and it's, it. you have to wait in line. I mean, it. everyone waits in line. There's no special treatment at this place. And it's all cash. Uh, you have to bring cash, if I remember correctly. I'm pretty sure that's true. And, um, you know, it's very, very kind of basic food. I mean, some things are just like tortilla and melted cheese or tortilla and melted cheese and chiles or tortilla and some roasted pork. And that's it. Mm. You put some salsa on it, you're good to go. You know, I used to work in Santa Barbara. I mean, I remember waiting in line there and seeing David Crosby, <laughs> Jackson Brown. You know, they're just waiting in line with everybody because they love these tacos so much. <laughs> I'm going to give your listeners a secret, though, similar to the pie and burger one. Okay. A pie and burger, I'm saying go for breakfast. Right. At La Superica, you know, you're going to see this big board uh, with all these tacos. And, yeah, you want to get some. But there's a little, little board right above the window that has specials. And those specials tend to be tamales and sometimes, like, a stew, you know, um, mm -hmm. like a hominy stew or something. Um Get that stuff. That stuff is very special. Again, the locals know this. The locals will go in, see whatever is on the board of specials and, right. and order two of each. Um, I'll tell you, last time I was there, I flew in to Burbank, which is my little secret maneuver. I like to fly to Burbank or Long Beach. And I rented a car and drove straight up to La Superica in Santa Barbara. Like That's, that's how much I needed it. <laughs> When it comes to wine destinations, the Napa Valley and Sonoma County tend to get the most attention, but guest Katie Hayward reminds us that the Central Coast needs to be on your list, too. Hayward owns uncorked wine tours in Paso Robles and says there's no shortage of delectable options around town. We have everything from Zinn, Bordeaux varietals, Rhone varietals. I mean, it's it's amazing. I mean, if you ask a sommelier, you know, probably 10, 15, 20 years ago, we would be known for our Zinfandels. But what we've found is that we can actually grow pretty much anything here, which is which makes us stand out as well. Um, I know that, you know, Napa is known for their cabs, but we definitely have a, um, a lot of winemakers right now trying to 
put us on the map for cabs, which we're doing, which is which has been amazing. Um, and as far as different blending, it's just it's it's anything goes. I mean, there's just some crazy blends coming out. Um, uh, it's really anything. I mean, we have GSM was a big thing, you know, five, six years ago. And now they're doing like ZSNMs, which is like, you know, Zinfandel, Sarama, Vedra, where GSM was Grenache, Sarama, Vedra. So they're just constantly experimenting. And, and there's some just crazy blends that you're just like, this is awesome. So um, it, it's really whatever they want to do, they can kind of make happen, which is fun. Yeah, that sounds like it. And I know that you created customized itineraries for wine lovers. So let's do that right now. I want to go to, say, three iconic Paso Robles wineries. Where are you taking me, and, and what makes each of these spots special? That's a question I get all the time. What's your favorite winery? <laughs> and it's, it's really tough because it's, I mean, there's, depends on my mood. I feel like drinking. Is it wintertime? Is it summertime? Is it hot? All of those things. So I did come up with three that I felt were um, kind of iconic for this area. Um, one is um, Eberly Winery. Um, Gary Eberly kind of known as the godfather of the wine region. He just had his 40-year anniversary. Um, he is actually kind of the co-founder of Pastorable's Appalachian. Um, that started back in 1983. So he's been around for a long time. They have a huge, you know, wide range of varietals on their tasting menu um, and just a family-owned and operated. So literally you'll see Gary sitting outside in the afternoon drinking his favorite Cabernet and you you get his, you know, he'll sign the bottles. And it's just, I think a lot of people love that about our areas that they, you actually get a meet the winemaker, the owners, they're always present and they, you know, you can tell that they, they'll, they'll love it. Um, another one that I just, I send a lot of people to is Janelle Ducey, J. Ducey Wines. Um, Janelle's family started um, growing grapes in our region back in the 1920s. So they were always big grape growers. A lot of the um, wines that you do find in our area hmm. actually have Ducey grapes in in them. You go in there and my groups just love it. This is Paso. This is awesome. So um, that's definitely one of our favorites. And then also uh, Dow Vineyards. Um, they have one of the most beautiful views as far as a wine tasting room goes. Uh, the Dow Brothers started their winery about 10 years ago. Um, we've always been big advocates. Um, they, they've they helped the region a lot. They promote our area so much and um, they've kind of changed the way things are going as well um, and, and in a good way. Um, they definitely have a, a, a class and a style up there and if you just want to go and have lunch or buy a bottle and enjoy the view I mean again that that view is is, is phenomenal and we're really happy to have them here and and helping with our our brands for sure yeah it, so, it sounds really great it sounds like you know they're producing really great wines and they are like smaller scale wineries so it's a much more intimate experience where you actually can meet the owners and the winemakers themselves just like you know so it just sounds really amazing Yes, it's it's pretty awesome, and like I said, yeah, nine times out of ten, you'll have the winemaker behind the bar pouring, and and they're so enthusiastic huh. and and um, you know passionate, obviously about about what they do. Okay, well, you totally crushed the wine question, but I I know there's more <laughs> to Paso than just wine, right? So where else do you take visitors? Yeah, so um, the beer scene has definitely been booming. Um, Firestone Brew is is pretty well known, and they're um, expanding in the U.S. like crazy right now. So they've actually got a whole campus, almost like Google, um, that they they 
have um, Barrel House Brew. They always have bands playing, food trucks. That's a great way to end. So a lot of breweries. Um, I think we have probably 12 to 15 that are around here now. Um, we also have mm. several olive oil producers. Um, so that's really kind of a fun thing, especially for people that aren't wine drinkers. You can do an olive oil tasting, right? Yeah, olive oil tasting is really fun. It's a good way to break up your day as well. So, um, <laughs> so that's a fun thing to do. Um, and then there's also distilleries. And uh, Alex Villacana, he was kind of the first to jump on this bandwagon and, and start the whole distillery process. But the, the free run juice that was just basically going down the drain, um, he started you know, capturing that and bought a still and, and started making spirits. And everyone's like, well, that's a good idea. So now there's, a, <laughs> I think there's 10 distilleries. Um, so that's really fun. So people that don't like wine, don't like beer, they can actually come and taste spirits. So they have cucumber, vodka, limoncello. I mean, several different things they're experimenting, experimenting with. Some are putting them in barrels and, and making a whiskey type situation. It's, it's, it's just fantastic. That sounds great. And and let's talk about the downtown of Paso Robles. It's a very walkable downtown, isn't it? Yes, it's it's definitely very walkable. I, I typically recommend, you know, especially for first timers staying downtown because you can just, you know, after a wine tour or after you go out in the country, you come downtown. I mean, it's amazing just in our, um, just the downtown alone, how many amazing restaurants there are, farm to table, Italian. I mean, everything's very fresh and and yummy. They've got tasting rooms downtown. So if you didn't want to hire a driver, you could literally just walk around downtown all day and taste downtown. Um, really cute boutique shops and, and pretty much any, you know, it could be a good day. <laughs> From Paso Robles, it's about a 30-mile drive to the V6 Ranch in Parkfield. As owner John Varian will tell you, it's the place to go if you've ever dreamed of getting out on a horse, sleeping under the stars, and trying your hand at cattle wrangling. We're so blessed where our ranch is here in Parkfield on the central coast here. It's it's oak woodlands, uh, uh, open grasslands, and it's just as beautiful as anywhere you'll be. Um, on the top of the ranch, if you are you look to the east, you see uh, the Sierras, and you look to the west, you see the Coast Range, and you're basically looking across California. It's so near everything, and yet we're in the town of Parkville, which is population 18, and at nighttime, you mm-hmm. won't sing, see a single light other than the moonlight or the stars. Well, I mean, your, your tagline for the ranch is the cowboy side of California. What, what exactly does that mean? Well, California, um, just because it's sheer number of people and everything, a lot of people have forgotten that this is really where cowboys started. Um, the Spanish uh, were really the first cowboys, and all through California here, the, the Spanish land grants, the ranchos and everything, that's where the, the – cowboy attire, uh, the training of horses um, really started really close to here on the Central Coast, Santa Barbara, really the center of it. And, uh, you know, it's just because of the cities and there's so much going on in this state, everyone seems to forget that uh, there still is a huge amount of open land and cowboys that do it uh, very similar to the way they did it, you know, 100 years ago. So now where exactly are you located? You're in a town called Parkfield, California. Where is that? Yeah, Parkfield is on the central coast, um, just exactly midway between um, Los Angeles and San Francisco uh, near the town of Paso Robles, which is known for its wine. 
All right. So so let's say I, I've signed up for one of your cattle drives. When do I show up? What happens when I first arrive? Kind of walk us through it. So all of our ride, most all of our rides are a little different format than a typical dude ranch. We we are Thursday through Sunday for most of our rides, and that is perfect amount of time considering when you're here. It's a lot of time in the saddle. Um, we are very horse orientated. Um, if you came for the the pool and this and that, that's definitely we have all those things, but that's a sideline. And so when you get here. Um, you get uh, on, let's say on our cattle drives, we actually go to the back half of the ranch to gather. So we um, put all your gear in a trailer, we haul it all up and you go up and you pitch your own bedroll or your own tent and sleep out under the stars um, for the three nights that you're there. And we, it's- That sounds pretty cool. Yeah, and so you get to, uh, we're on the mountain range that, separates the coast from the central valley and so you we camp right on top of that mountain and you're out uh with each day you put a lunch together first thing in the morning at breakfast and and you go out with a wrangler and you're out all day long gathering cattle and um combining them all up into one area and then the last day on sunday we drive them to the other parts of the ranch where we're where we need to move to and so this kind of this work that you're doing, you know, uh, guiding and corralling and everything, that's something that you would be doing normally and you're just letting people tag along and help out? Or are you actually creating the experience for people to be able to do it? No, we we organize our cattle drives. Our cattle drives are just one of our many different rides we have. But our cattle drives are organized in the spring and then one in the fall when we are doing our cattle work. Um, we have a what's called our stalker operation, which is we um, buy cattle after they've been weaned and we raise them up into bigger cattle and then we sell them. And so there's so a lot a lot going on in the springtime. Yeah, so, so so people are actually being able to like you can actually you're actually experiencing the real thing. This isn't just like an amusement park ride. No, we are we're doing it whether you're there or not. And depending on you know the people uh, and the cattle, uh, sometimes you get more done than other times. But um, we're um, it's it's exactly that. Um, you're you're doing exactly what we would be doing if you weren't if the guests weren't there. And uh, the Wranglers, all the people that are you're riding with and everything, do this for a living, most of which are my family members. There's three generations of Varians on the ranch. And um, hmm. they, uh, you know, born and raised, all, all of them here. So they know the ranch. They know cattle and everything else. But when we do have other people helping, we have people that are um, professionals. Uh, they either manage ranches, they train horses, um, whatever they they do this for a living, and so um, it takes a it it takes a little different situation than if you were going to ride at a riding stable. You've got to have a horse that you can steer and go around cattle, and you've got to have people that are savvy enough to know. Um, okay, this person can handle this route. Okay, now those there, let's take them on the easier gather. So it is for all people that have never ridden before, come and do it, but we just know how to break them up and, and put them where they're gonna be most useful and that where they'll feel comfortable.
The Monterey Bay Aquarium is a world-class attraction and a great place to see all sorts of marine life, from sharks to sea otters to penguins. The aquarium's Allison Sergal tells us if she had just one word to sum up the feeling guests can expect when they first walk in, it would be awe. Basically, our exhibits are letting you get up real close and personal with what's below the surface, which is something that a lot of us don't have as many opportunities to interact with. Typically, when we think about the ocean, maybe the mental image that comes to mind is like the surface of the ocean, maybe just like a vast blue empty expanse. But what's below the surface is what's really exciting. So in the Monterey Bay Aquarium, you have opportunities through our exhibits to really start to understand the different habitats that are out there in the ocean and the amazing interconnections of life in those habitats and how we're a part of that too. It's just a really cool experience. Well, let's talk a little bit more about, you know, what some of the exhibits are that inspire you or that make inspiring other people easy. So one of the premier exhibits at the aquarium that I think is one of the ones that kind of pops up first in mind when you think about the Monterey Bay Aquarium is our kelp forest exhibit. That's one of the first exhibits you're likely to see if you kind of come in through the main entrance area and then make a left into our ocean's edge area. And just the experience of standing in front of that exhibit. We actually have benches set up in front of that exhibit so that people can just sit there for as long as they want. And it's really just, it's kind of almost spiritual. And it's one of those exhibits that the longer you look at it, the more you find in there. And you can sort of start to see that it really is a community and there's different animals that live in different neighborhoods within that exhibit. So like if you're looking at the very top of that exhibit, there's these beautiful small orange kelp perch that are just kind of hiding in among the the blades of the kelp at the very top. And then you have things like sea stars and wolf eels hiding among the rocks at the bottom. And then giant sea bass that are kind of cruising through the middle of the water. And it's just a, it's a really, it's a really fun place to come spend some time. And you really do get that sense of awe looking inside that exhibit. It really is one of the most iconic exhibits at, at the aquarium. But there's so many others, too. I mean, it is such a, a, a big place. What are some of the other kind of can't miss exhibits visitors should make time to soak in? So when guests come in, one of the things that we recommend is if you have the opportunity, try and give yourself at least three hours to spend at the aquarium. Because like you mentioned, there's so much to see here. We have two buildings, two floors, and everything is just jam-packed with can't-miss experiences, in my opinion. The other thing we always try and recommend is that while you're here, make sure you catch at least one feeding program and at least one auditorium program while you're here. That will really add to your educational experience. And another thing I recommend is making sure you make time to connect with our volunteers and staff. They'll really add a lot to your experience as well. I think one of the things, if you if you time your visit right and you're able to be at the aquarium at 11 a.m., We do an open sea feeding in our open sea exhibit. So that exhibit represents the pelagic ocean, the largest habitat on earth. You have sharks, you have tuna, sardines, sea turtles sometimes swimming around in there. And we do a feeding of that exhibit at 11 a.m. every morning. And that really allows you to see all the amazing feeding adaptations of those animals, all those great natural behaviors on display. And you can learn about our seafood watch program too. So that's definitely something I recommend making sure you are able to catch that program if you have the opportunity. And on the way in, I definitely recommend stopping at our tiny drifter station because as you stare at that open sea exhibit, you know, over a million gallons inside that exhibit, what you're going to be noticing most is some of those larger animals, the top predators, things like sharks or tuna. What you're not seeing that is possibly even more important is all the plankton that help to support that entire food chain. So all these microscopic 
animals, all these, you know, photosynthesizing organisms as well that are so small that you can't even see them, but they're all, all this life contained within a single drop of seawater. We actually have a volunteer station with a really great high-quality, high-powered microscope that allows you to see plankton. And it's so high resolution that you can actually stare into the eye spot on a copepod and kind of watch it swimming around in the dish. And there's really cool education oh, that are really cool. Isn't it cool? There's really cool education that our volunteers do there too about um, basically the way that we can help protect all this ocean life in the base of our ocean food chains. Because right now, one of the things that's happening is our ocean chemistry is changing as a result of our carbon emissions. So that's something that we can all work on in our communities to help protect that base of the food chain. Absolutely. Okay, one last thing, Allison, for folks visiting the aquarium, are there particular times of day or events that not everyone knows about, maybe a certain feeding or an, an animal that's most active an hour before closing time or something like that? What, what kind of an insider tip do you think people ought to know? So one thing that I always recommend is not many people know about this, but we have a text alert program at the aquarium. And that gets you set up for any of the special opportunities that happen that are not on our regular scheduled program guide. So when you walk into the aquarium, we do have program guides that list kind of the schedule of planned events for the day. So that's definitely something you want to reference to be able to plan your visit. Our staff in the entrance area will help you out with that. But you'll also see on there if you want to get signed up for the text alert program, you text the word experience to 56512, and that will actually send you a text message directly to your phone if there's anything extra special that's happening. Like say we're going to go feed the giant Pacific octopus and that wasn't on the program plan for the day. You'll get a text alert about that so you can make sure to go check it out. Or you never know what we're going to spot off our back deck. You know, times this time of year, we start to get our gray whales migrating through and we'll send text alerts about really cool wildlife off the back deck too. So that's definitely a value add for your experience. That's a really great idea, especially if things are happening in real time, right? You have animals, you have things happening, you're in, in the wild, you have the ocean. So that's a really great idea to let people know, hey, this unexpected thing is happening right now. You can be in on it. That is an excellent idea. Yeah, you know, whenever I come to the aquarium to visit just as a guest, I definitely make sure that I sign up for that because you get to see some really cool things that you totally would have missed otherwise. And for that same reason, I definitely recommend whenever you're out enjoying the exhibits throughout the aquarium, connect with our staff and volunteers because the whole reason we're there interpreting those exhibits is to help you discover something inside those exhibits that you might have otherwise missed. So we can point out really cool animals that we know are there inside the exhibits, but that are harder to find. Sometimes they're not even on the exhibit labels, but we know where to find them. So if you want the insider scoop on that, definitely talk to our staff and volunteers. We'll also help you learn something about the exhibits and the animals, and hopefully that will leave you feeling inspired to help protect the ocean. Our Central California highlight reel wouldn't be complete without a drive through the Central Valley. Along the way up Highway 99, you might stop in Fresno, home of the one-of-a-kind Forestier Underground Gardens, which you'll hear more about shortly. I started my Highway 99 road trip in Bakersfield, where I visited Buck Owens' Crystal Palace to learn about what country music fans know as the Bakersfield sound. Bakersfield is a hub for agriculture and oil production, but it may be its association with American music that most travelers think of first. The Bakersfield sound became an alternative to Nashville's hold on country music in the 1950s and 60s, with stars like Buck Owens and Merle Haggard rising to fame. And the influence continues today with musicians like Dwight Yoakam. And I'm at the epicenter of the Bakersfield sound, the Buck Owens Crystal Palace, with an authentic buckaroo, Jim Shaw. Jim, you played with Buck Owens and the Buckaroos for many years. Tell me what this place meant to Buck and what it means to fans of country music today. 
Well, during our years of traveling, I started when I was uh, 23, 1970. Uh, in all those uh, years traveling, Buck always talked about if we ever build our own place, we would do this, we would do that. And the whole idea, of course, was uh, have people come to you instead of having to fly around and go to them. And so uh, at a certain point, which happened to be 1996 is when we opened this, he, he'd had enough traveling, <laughs> and we decided to build the one we've been talking about for all those years. So what, what are some of the things that he really wanted to put in this venue? Well, he wanted it to be a, a, a restaurant and a, and a theater and a bar and a museum all stirred up together. And so, yeah, so the seating in this huge room, this theater, is not your typical theater seating. So is it basically set up almost like a supper club with tables and chairs yes, it's, and it's uh, multi-level? Yes. It's uh, a very uh, concert but family oriented. Yeah. I mean certain certain nights uh, when the Buckaroos play there and other the local bands, it's strictly people out having parties, uh, bringing the family out for dinner. Uh, it's it's the only place I've ever known where you can uh, have live music and, and children dancing with their grandparents on the <laughs> dance floor. So what makes Bakersfield and the Bakersfield sound different from the music scenes in like LA or Nashville? Uh, when people ask me uh, what the Bakersfield sound was, uh, it was it was a very raw, high energy, uh, small group, alternative to Nashville's real syrupy strings, background singers at the time. And I liken it to the shock when the, the Beatles popped out, uh -huh. four guys, no big production, no overdubbing, just four guys playing music. And I think that's kind of what uh, took the country music by storm. From Bakersfield, I drove north to Fresno, where I stopped in at the unique Forestier Underground Gardens. This otherworldly attraction was the dream of an Italian immigrant who came to Fresno a century ago. I asked tour guide Lauren Nickel and site manager Cami Sapola how this place came to be and why here. Well, our builder, Baldassar Forestier, uh, he was a Sicilian immigrant. He came from a little province in Sicily called Filari, um, and he came out to have that American dream. And he came to Fresno for agriculture. He wanted to have a great farm. He found himself 80 acres here. Uh, got very excited to start farming, but then he realized that summers here in Fresno are really, really hot. Uh, 115 degrees on average for Baldassar when he came out here. He's not used to it, so he wanted to find a way to keep cool. He remembered uh, some of his first experiences in America were building subway tunnels in Boston. And he also remembered catacombs and wine cellars in Italy. Underground, it gets a little bit cooler, so he made himself a little cellar room to sleep in and keep cool. And that was the beginning of a dream. Uh, he realized that it was just enough cooler to make a difference and that he wanted to share it with the world. So he built himself a little home underground and then started to create uh, what he hoped was going to become a day resort for other guests to come, get out of that heat, enjoy some citrus, and um, just have a nice time. And so from that one little room that he started with, what did he end up with? Uh, that one little room turned into about 22 acres of the 80 that were excavated into courtyards and different rooms and other unique sites. All right, let's check it out. Yeah, you're going to need to watch your head and your step as we walk around. Our founder was not a very tall man. Uh, he reports differ. Uh, yeah, some yeah. places say he was five foot six. Others say he's five foot eight. I think he was wearing work boots for the five foot eight measurement. I could be wrong. Uh, but yeah, so all of our archways are pretty low. 
We often have to remind our taller tour guests to watch their head and their step as they're walking around. I stoop just a little and walk under an archway made of rough-hewn stones, following Lauren and Cammie down inclines and stairs cut right into the reddish Fresno earth. We're already 10 feet or so below the surface, and the passageway opens up into a room, or series of rooms, really. Some feel like natural caves, but others have skylights letting in the light from above. And everywhere there are planters made of stone containing citrus trees, grapevines, and all kinds of greenery, soaking up the sunshine that filters down from above. The name of the attraction makes perfect sense to me now. I really do feel like I'm in an underground garden. It's strange and wonderful all at once. The lowest point that we'll get to on the tour is about 20 feet, 24 feet underneath okay. the ground. Um, the route that we're able to walk is about two and a half acres. Um, we sit on five acres total, um, which is a small portion of the original land that our founder Baldassar first purchased. Um, but that's what's protected um, by our California State Historical Landmark status, number 916. Um, <laughs> we're very, very proud of that. So did this business idea of his to kind of make this a gathering place for people in the summer heat, did that actually did it work out? He never actually charged admission, but we have newspaper articles that are going back to the 20s from Los Angeles, San Francisco, obviously the Fresno area as well. So people were getting very curious about this place. So they would come by and just, can we just take a look? And he, yeah, come on right, in. Right. Sit down with me. Let me tell you about my dream. Let me show you what I'm doing. Do we know if he inspired anyone to do anything like this anywhere else? You know, we have people every day tell us that he inspires them, but I've never heard of anybody doing anything quite like this. Um, you know, we have interesting things like Watts Tower and, you know, there's other man-made interesting things, but I, I've never really found any place that's quite like this. Right. The Watts Tower comparison was apt. Forestier Underground Gardens is a quirky, unique, unforgettable place, and I'm so glad I got a chance to see it for myself. Exploring this subterranean attraction was a reminder to me that California is a fascinating place populated by countless fascinating characters. We hope you enjoyed our audio tour around the central part of California. California Now is produced by Visit California. I'm your host, Satirius Johnson. You can find more episodes of our show on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe. And you can find links to the many places we talked about in today's episode on our website, visitcalifornia.com podcast. This episode is the second in a three-part series that began in Southern California. Next time, we'll share highlights from Northern California, rounding out our comprehensive look at this vast and magnificent state. Until then...